Amen. Well, today is the anniversary, at least what we say is the anniversary of the 1517 Reformation. Uh, it was not started by Martin Luther, though it is his pinning of the theses on the doors of Castle Church in Wittenberg that ignited the flame that caused the Reformation to burst forth. Um, brought all of these questions about the papacy and about Roman Catholicism and workspace righteousness right into the open, right into public debate. Martin Luther wanted to incite revolt. No, it, that was not his plan. Uh, Martin Luther wanted to start a conversation about what he saw money being used for, um, what he saw the Roman Catholic Church using money for, um, taking from the poor, giving to the rich, using the money of the poor to build St. Saint, Saint Peter's Basilica. He said, that seems wrong to me. I want to open a conversation about this. The Pope is richer than everyone else, yet he's taking everyone else's money to build St. Peter's and to make it this great, grand, ornate thing. That's one of the things I want to talk about. Another is this, this gospel of works, gospel of works and money and time. The more time you give to God, the more likely you are to get into heaven. The more money you give to God, the more likely you are to get into heaven and to get your relatives into heaven. And the better you are, the better you act, the more perfect you can be, the higher place you will have in heaven with God. And if you don't, if you don't act right, you are anathema. You are cut off from salvation, from the kingdom of God, and from the church Catholic. This morning, I want to consider these four questions, and we'll be in Romans chapter 1. We're going to exposit the text like we normally do. Uh, this text answers these four questions really well. Question 1, why do we teach that people must contribute to their salvation by praying a prayer, by being baptized, by speaking in tongues, by partaking in the Eucharist, by confessing their sins to priests, by doing evangelism, or otherwise working to please God. Question two, why do we teach that once coming to Christ, people must do good enough or give enough money so as to not fall from grace or so as to earn blessings from God? Question three, why does the church major on buildings and budgets and minor on the work of the gospel as already completely finished in Christ alone, as if we need anything more? And question four, why does the church provide security in the works of people rather than the work of Christ? These are the four questions I want to consider, and we will be in the whole book of Romans. Can we do that this morning? You think we can cover the whole book of Romans this morning? Ken saying amen. Do it. We'll take. How long would that take? If it would take like, if it would take like two years, it'd be like 52 hours times 104 hours. You think we could spend 104 hours consecutively just going through the book of Romans? I don't, I don't know if I could handle that. <laughs> I guess you're never really finished, right? Because scripture is infinitely deep. So once we finish, we just have to start over and, and get, get more depth. That'd be perfectly fine. Uh, we'll start in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Uh, this is the thesis of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 is the verse that converted Martin Luther. Uh, the verse that the Holy Spirit used to convert Martin Luther from his ideas of workspace righteousness to the doctrines of grace, to the five sola, by, by grace alone, through faith alone, 
in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And then he came to the conclusion, in fact, the only way God can be revealed and what he is doing can be revealed is in Scripture alone, no tradition added. This is the verse that set off Martin Luther. This is the verse that exploded into what we now call the Reformation, a Reformation that started in 1517 and continues to today, a Reformation in which nothing new was started, but a Reformation by which the Reformers hoped to take people back to the religion, the teaching of the Apostles, the teaching of Scripture, the teaching of Christ. So it is not my goal today to take us back to 1517. It is my goal today to take us back to Christ. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Everything we are about to read, everything we are about to consider, has to do with what the gospel is and why the gospel is such good news. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Salvation then, the message of salvation is the gospel. That's what the gospel is. And there is, there is power, in fact, the power of God in this message of salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So this isn't a message or a work that is relegated to one group or another. This is for the Jew. Why the Jew first? Because the Jews were God's chosen people through the Old Testament, the chosen people through whom his word came and through whom people know Christ. In fact, Christ himself came, was incarnated through the Jews. So to the Jew first and then to the Greek. This message is for both groups. Verse 17, for in, in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written but the righteous man shall live by faith. There Paul takes us back to the Old Testament, Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. So what Paul is writing here, and everything he writes about the gospel, everything he writes about salvation through faith, and from faith and to faith, as opposed to works, he's pulling all of it from the Old Testament lest we think that the Old Testament presents some sort of works-based righteousness. Paul here clues his reader in, clues us in to the fact that this gospel that is through faith alone, this is the gospel that the Old Testament gave us. And this is the gospel we continue to proclaim. So it turns out not only are we taking this back to Christ 2,000 years ago, we are taking this back to Genesis chapter 1, First one, back to the Old Testament prophets, back to the Old Testament law. Everything Paul writes about the gospel here is in reference to the law and the prophets. And that is important because we, we don't want to preach a new message. God, if he is immutable, if he does not change, he's not going to all of a sudden with the advent of Christ just change the way that he does things. That's the technical term, does things, Right? No, he's going to continue the same work. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. This is the eternal gospel. This is the timeless gospel. This is the historic gospel that has always been around, yet we always revert to something different. In verses 18 through 32 here in Romans, we see that the gospel begins with God's wrath. 
We don't have good news unless there's what? Bad news. This is the bad news. Are you ready? You know, someone asks you want the good news or the bad news first. The gospel, we always get the bad news first. All right, here's the bad news. Four, this is why Paul is unashamed of the gospel. This is what Paul is using. This is how Paul begins to describe this gospel work. This is how, how Paul begins to describe what it means for the righteous man to live by faith and for God to be revealed from faith to faith, for righteousness to be revealed from faith to faith. He, he begins with the wrath of God, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And I want to stop there and warn us against doing something because I have heard people use this passage, this text, what we are about to read. I've heard people use this in three ways. The first way is this. They'll take this and they'll use it to point their finger at others, right? To condemn others. Oh, look at this list of sin. God has handed you over to your depraved mind. You sinner, you better fix yourself or God's just going to continue handing you over, right? And we use this in reference to homosexuality, which Paul mentions here. We use this in reference to any number of sins, including thievery and arrogance and insolence, all of which Paul mentions in this passage. But people take this passage, many take this passage and use it to condemn others. And indeed, this passage condemns others, but I, I question using it so that we can condemn others. I don't think we should do that. The second way I've seen people use this, rather appropriate this, or rather explain it away, is by explaining it in such a way that their own sin is justified. No, homosexuality isn't wrong. Now that's talking about grown men taking young boys, right? And they'll, they'll try to explain this text away by saying that. And they'll say, that's not what I'm doing. So I'm, I must be perfectly just before God. God is love. He is loving. He wouldn't judge me just for loving someone else, right? So they'll explain what this passage plainly says. They'll explain it away in order to justify their own actions. And the third way, the position I think we should take as we read through this is by examining ourselves. I think Paul's intent here is that his readers would examine themselves. And then when they examine themselves, and we're going to see it as we move through the text, so when they examine themselves, they say, crap, I am condemned before God. Right? So the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. There is some kind of a priori knowledge about who God is. Some sort of a priori knowledge about the difference between right and wrong, about moral things. It's why when cultures, different cultures develop in different parts of the world, morality tends to look the same until a civilization gets so advanced that they begin explaining away morality, right? But essentially, it looks that there's something innate within us that gives us the sense of right and wrong. And it may be naturalistic, and I'm okay with saying that, right? Like, oh, those parts go together, that must be right, right? Just that kind of commonsensical sort of thing. Oh, it's probably wrong for me to kill someone else because of my selfish motivation. Like, there's something that just seems 
wrong, right? And every civilization that develops, it's, it's wrong. It's against the, against the law of that civilization. There's something innate there. But Paul says, since the creation of the world, his, that's God's, invisible attributes, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. That is a naturalistic sort of observation of who God is. Nature operates this way. Nature seems to fit this way. So I can use my inductive reasoning as I observe nature to learn something about who God is. Oh, if humanity is the, the, the apex creature on earth, perhaps Perhaps we can look at humanity and learn something about who God is as God relates to his creation. And, and then you read the Bible, and the Bible tells us that we're created in God's image for his glory alone, that we are his picture on, on earth. There's something here about the creation that reveals the attributes of God. So people are without excuse. They know this. It's not difficult to see this, according to Paul. We like to explain it away. For even though they knew God, here to mean probably they knew about God, because if they knew God, they wouldn't be given over to such atrocity, right? Even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and the birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They worshipped idols. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that, there's purpose here, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Why did God hand them over? So that they would suffer in their sin so that they would be handed over to sin. This is what we see in Genesis chapter 3, right? God handed Adam and Eve over. There's the tree. Don't eat from it. And they sinned and God is handing them over to their sin. Now they will die. They died spiritually there and their bodies will die. He's, he's handing them over. Paul's just recounting Genesis chapter, chapter 3 here only he's doing it through instruction rather than narrative, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, are, are we ourselves, are we the creature or are we the creator? We are the creature, so self-worship falls right in here, which I think where our society is, where our culture is, self-worship. Even in the way that we do religion, it's self-worship. So that they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, which means God didn't have to give people over to their degrading passions. He, he chose to. For the evidence that God handed them over, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural here in a sexual sense. In the same way, also men abandoned the natural function with men of the women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. 
God handed them over to this. God handed them over to their lust, to their desires. And so when people say that they have free will, we do, right? We have desires, we have lusts, we have volition, we choose to do stuff. That's precisely what Paul is getting at here. God handed them over to their own wills, and where did it lead them? It led them into sin. And they're receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind, which means their minds were already depraved, essentially, naturally depraved. And God handed them over to that, to do the things which are not proper, which do not honor God, the things that God did not design to work that way being filled with all unrighteousness. So there was depravity and unrighteousness. And then being filled with all unrighteousness, there's w- wickedness. This is the fruit of the unrighteous heart, of the depraved mind. When, when we hand ourselves over to our own wills, to our own volition, when we live life in such a way where we do what we want to do, this is why it's so dangerous to say, you must choose God. This is why it's so dangerous to say you must choose what is good. You must choose not to sin. Because left to our own devices, we choose exactly the opposite. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance, the law of God, they, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. And the most the most I've heard people use this is simply to point fingers at others. Now here, Douglas Reformed Church and at, and at New Covenant Church in Wilcox, I never want us to use verses of Scripture like this in order to point at anyone in the church or out and say, and I'll tell you some things that I've heard, right? Homosexuality is the unforgivable sin. Well, even, even to mock people because of their sexuality from a pulpit seems, seems terrible, right? Or because of their lifestyle or because they drink too, too much, maybe. Or because of the way they look or smell or or whatever, right? That just it seems inappropriate. And, I, and I'll show you why. Because when I walk through this list, here's, here's what I notice. Concerning homosexuality, I've never been attracted to the same sex. But I have lusted. Me, yes, I have lusted. It's the same category. And Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've even lusted, if you've even thought about another woman, you have committed adultery in your heart. And so I'm guilty of the same sin. Same. It's exactly the same, right? 
And so I look at this, and from the outset, I'm like, I am guilty. I am wretched. God handed me over to a depraved mind. Who am I to condemn others because of that? Because that was me, right? Unrighteous, that describes me. Wicked, that describes me and who I was. Greedy, that describes me and who I was. Evil, that describes me, who I was, full of envy. Yes, check, like all of these so far, that describes me, who I was before Christ. Murder, now I haven't taken another human being's life, but I have been angry at someone else. And again, going back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he says, if you've even been angry with your brother, you are guilty of murdering them. And you're the same sin. So I am guilty. Strife. I have caused strife in my life. Deceit. I, I have deceived others in my past. And, and malice. I have been malicious toward others. Check. I have gossiped and I have slandered. I used to hate God even if I didn't say it. I loved me more than him and that's the same, right? I have been insolent and arrogant. Who hasn't been arrogant? And I have been boastful. I'm sure I have invented evil, though I don't know what it is. I may surprise you, have been disobedient to my parents. I've been without understanding. Do you know it was a sin to be without understanding? I feel like I'm still without understanding. Yeah? When it comes to many things. There was a point when I was untrustworthy and unloving and unmerciful. I would tear somebody up. And although I knew the law of God, I grew up in church. I knew the law of God. I knew the Ten Commandments. would come out the womb and they're in the hospital holding the Ten Commandments out. I know, I don't think that was the case. Right. But Sunday school, right? Ten Commandments. I knew those. Although they knew the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, I know what the law says, but this is what I really want to do, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. We celebrate this kind of pride, not only in the United States today. We celebrate this arrogance and we celebrate boastfulness and deceit. Someone is a shrewd businessman. It's not, it's not wrong to be a good businessman, but to be shrewd and to use business making money as an excuse to walk on others, right? That's, that requires deceit and insolence and arrogance and strife and slander. I mean, there's a lot going into that, right? But that's what we celebrate in the world today, especially in the Western world. We celebrate that. Even though we know that makes us worthy of death, we do it, we call it good, we justify it, and we encourage others to be that way. And Paul here, as he is writing, this is what Luther was struggling with, right? In 1517, like, if this is the case, who can be good? Now, the answer should be obvious to us at this point. No, no one. 
Martin Luther was reading this text, reading his Bible, and he's, he's in this monastery reading his Bible, and he's grieving over his sin. He would go to confession probably more than once a day to confess all of his sins. Finally, I think the priest told him, come back when you have something worthy of confessing. Right? But he was guilt-ridden, burdened by this, and we should be. This condemns us. This is the bad news. This is why we are all deserving of the wrath of God. And in chapter 2, Paul begins, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. Oh. You mean what we just read? If I use that to, to pass judgment on others, now Paul's talking to me? Yes. Every one of you who passes judgment, you have no excuse. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. That's present tense. In their judgment, even, they're practicing the same things, like malice and slander and arrogance and insolence, like those things. Like they're practicing that, which makes them worse than the person who's just, who's just sinning, right? Because they're like double sinning. Yeah, a double sin seems worse than a single sin. Yeah. These are technical terms, by the way. And in verse 2, you condemn yourselves, verse 2, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. So you're judging them, but in doing so, you're guilty of the same thing, and the judgment of God falls on you, too. No one is exempt from this. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? What, you think you're better than they are? Because you're pious? Because you're religious? Because you do some good things? Or because you have this list of don'ts that you try to keep? Right? And if you keep this small list of don'ts that you've come up with, then all of a sudden that makes you better than someone else? Do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? That's Paul's reply to that. You think that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly? Or do you think lightly of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Do you not realize the only reason you're still breathing? The only reason you even have a chance to judge others is because God is patient and kind and tolerant of you, judgmental person? Do you not know that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Did Paul say, do you not know that the kindness of God leads you to judge others? No. The kindness of God leads to repentance. When we recognize the kindness and the mercy of God and the tolerance that God has toward wretched sinners, we recognize his mercy and tolerance, his kindness. That causes exactly the opposite of the type of religion we see today, which points the finger of condemnation. And instead, of, instead of causing us to point the finger of condemnation, it, it causes us to repent of our sin because we recognize how understanding God is. We can relate this to abuse in the home, right? You have a father just domineers over his children. 
exasperates them, incites anger within them. It's condemning in the home and abusive to a good father who leads by example, who loves his children, who forgives. And you recognize, hey, this is... Like, the father who is a good father, he doesn't have to be that way. He has power. And he is so much bigger than his children. And he could force them to act exactly the way that he wants. But man, he is kind, and he's understanding, and he's tolerant, and he's merciful. But the children who have that good father as a father don't always recognize how good he is being because that's just what they're used to, right? God is always this way, always kind, merciful, tolerant of people's sin. He gave the Canaanites more than 400 years to repent, right? Before sending Israel in to take them out. And all people ever notice is, oh, God's so mean, he sent Israel in to take out the Canaanites. Not even recognizing his kindness, mercy, and tolerance because because that's how he always is. But when we do recognize it in the depth of our sin, like that draws us to repentance. God, I don't deserve you. God, you are amazing. Even even if it weren't for eternal life, like the gift of his tolerance is amazing. He is good to all people, even the worst of sinners who never come to know Christ. He is so kind and merciful and tolerant toward them while they are on this earth. Like That alone is an amazing gift. Paul's going to give us more than that here. But first, he says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will, quoting the Old Testament again, render to each person according to his deeds. There's a truth we need to grasp as well. God does judge us according to our deeds. And Paul goes on to explain that. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. That's their gift. If, If they do good, and seek the glory and honor and immortality, they will be given eternal life. My question is, who does that? On their own? No one. Paul has already established that, right? But he's saying God is just. If anyone did do that, sure, they could earn eternal life. Sure. But to those who are selfishly ambitious, ouch, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of a man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Greek. No one is exempt. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So if salvation could be gained by works, or in fact, Paul is saying it can be gained by works, our problem is no one does it. Right? No one's capable, no one's perfect. For there is no partiality with God. He is just. And the justice of God is important to grasp. Right? Remember, God is, God is just in everything he does. And because he is just by nature, God is 
just, just like God is love. He is just. Remember that God is just. We see why. Just by one infraction, we are deserving of death. One transgression against his law, we are deserving of death. One transgression against him, we are deserving of death. And just think about who God is, right? God is eternal. God is timeless. God is holy. And everything about creation reflects something about who God is. So to go against the natural order of things or to in some way treat ourselves like God as if our life is about getting what we want and following our wills, to sin against an eternal being is to earn an eternal consequence, right? I mean, the laws of this land, the land that we live in, you take somebody's life and your life gets taken, okay? Either by spending the rest of your duration in prison or by being killed. That resolves the debt. But if God is eternal and I sin against him, there's no way I can resolve that debt because he is eternal. He is forever. One transgression earns death, but not just death, but but some kind of everlasting consequence. And even an everlasting consequence can't can't make recompense for my sin against God because if God is eternal, outside of time, outside of time is a funny way to put it, if God is not bound by time, there, I'll put it that way, and me, having a beginning, even if I never had an end, I would never be able to repay that because my life had a beginning, a definite start point, right? So there's just no hope. And I think Paul's getting at all this. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and to the, to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law, that would be Gentiles, right? Gentiles were not given the law, the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Jews were. So Paul's referring to Gentiles here. Those who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Okay, so it's still binding. Gotcha. There's still a right and wrong. There's still a righteous standard. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. This sounds very works-based, doesn't it? If you do the law, you will be justified. And at this, I'm sure the, those reading this are like, yeah, see, this, this is why we're doing our best to keep the law. This is why we're doing our best to eliminate sin from our midst and, and really fighting this thing and carrying on because we want to earn eternal life by our good deeds and our good works and by giving enough, maybe by saying a sinner's prayer, getting baptized or observing the sacraments or by giving enough money, maybe we can get God to give us something in return. But Paul continues, and remember, this is just the start of his argument. It's just the baseline. This is where he's starting out. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, 
not having the law, are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts, alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. All of the deeds will come out. And for those who choose to live by their works, both what could be considered to be good and what could be considered bad, there are very real scales of justice. We didn't just pull this idea out of, out of nowhere, right? Very real scales of justice. And the works will be weighed. Paul's argument so far shows us that on every single scale, the bad deeds outweigh the good. In fact, we look at Isaiah, and even those things we think are good deeds, according to the flesh, are filthy rags to God. So all of our deeds weigh the scale against us. And we earn death. We earn death for ourselves. We continue moving forward in Paul's argument here in the book of Romans. We're not going to read everything leading up to that because this gives us the baseline. This gives us the bad news, right? You're dead because you sinned. And there's no way you can come out of that. And he gets to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and he summarizes everything that he said up to that point. I want to read verses 21 through 26 in chapter 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. That's what he's been working up to, apart from the law. Thank God, because if it wasn't apart from the law, I would be condemned. There would be nothing I could do. That, that was Martin Luther's struggle. Like, there's got to be something here. Something has got to, got to give. Because if the law is what we have, and that's the standard of righteousness, and that's what we have to live up to, we're all damned. It doesn't matter if we do church or not. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So the purpose of the law and the prophets, sure, it tells us how to be righteous if it's possible. If we followed it, we would be righteous, but we can't do that. But Paul here says, but the law and the prophets, they, they actually testified to Christ. They testified to this gospel of grace. And he's already quoted the Old Testament to show us the gospel of grace is there. It's in the old, that is the Old Testament message. You're misreading it, right? Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. And we get to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned. He just comes out and says it. We don't have to guess about his argument now. He's already shown us all have sinned. He's given us a list. And I, I, I venture to guess we have all committed all of the sins he mentioned there in chapters 1 and 2. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what he was working up to. Being justified as a gift by works? By our works? No, as a gift. That's something quite different. By, by his what? Grace. Through the redemption that is in my works. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's what he says. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood. Propitiation there means he took the punishment we deserved upon himself. Who can pay an eternal debt? Mm -hmm. Only an eternal person. 
even if I began to exist at my birth and I live on forever, I can't pay that debt, remember? But if Jesus Christ paid for it, the propitiation for our sin, it has to be eternal. Which means the only way this works is if Christ is God and is one with God. And he's God the Son. That's the only way this works. God displayed him publicly as a propitiation in his blood through, through our works. No, through faith. It's something quite different. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. This was to demonstrate whose righteousness. God made a public display out of Jesus. Why? Well, people ask that question all the time. Why did God kill his son? What a mean dad. No, he did it to demonstrate his own righteousness. So that no person could boast. He is the one to receive all glory. He is exalting his son through the death of his son. Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over, he winked at the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. Our righteousness was never to be on display. It was never God's plan. It was never God's plan for us to boast in our works, to be super pious, to create that kind of religion. God's design is for us to see his righteousness. That means we don't have to be, what? Righteous. In fact, the gospel and the way biblical doctrine works out never allows for any man to become righteous. That's the Roman Catholic doctrine the Reformers were fighting against. Instead, the Reformers said, wait, that's not what we see. We don't see people becoming righteous. We see Christ's righteousness imputed to them so that when people see them, they see the righteousness of Christ. And again, it's Christ's righteousness on display to the glory of the Father. That's God's plan, and that makes sense. If I create something, I want my name on it. Is it not right for God to have his name on his creation and for God to be the one glorified? Is that not just? It is. God is the one to be glorified. And that's why he does salvation the way he does salvation. That's why, that's why we are justified the way we are justified. We are justified in Christ to the display of his righteousness, not ours. Which is why in popular religion and you know, is Roman Catholicism, I think probably majority Protestantism now and other religions like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and Islam and, and Hinduism and any number of others, right? That's why it all depends on works because in some way we're glorifying ourselves through, our, through the things we do by being good enough or by staying away from the things we're supposed to stay away from or by praying the, the right way. Right. And in Protestantism, we've even taken this so far as to introduce a, a time we call invitation where people will come forward and if you say the right words, you will be saved. Right? We call it the sinner's prayer. In Roman Catholicism, the observance of, of the sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist, that's what keeps you in salvation, keeps you in the church. 
But even the Roman Catholic Church and Luther, I think you mentioned this last week in Wilcox, Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent on justification, this is item nine under justification, they made this statement pretty clear. If anyone says that by faith alone the impious are justified in such a way as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to the obtaining the grace of justification and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will, let him be anathema. If someone says salvation is not through faith alone and says that you cannot cooperate with God in order to be justified or to become saved. If anyone says that, let them be anathema. Cut off from the assembly, cut off from salvation, cut off from, from God and the church Catholic. And I made the statement in contradiction to Scripture, which Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And continuing through his argument in Romans, Romans chapter 6, verse 23, Paul just comes out and says that the wages of sin is death. Oh, you want to work for your salvation, you want to earn a wage, that wage is death, my friend. As long as you have that kind of religion, you are dead. That is really what anathematizes you. But the free, free, free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then we get to Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And Paul comes out and says, here's how you know you've been saved. You become perfect. No. You become righteous. No. Here's how you know. You believe Christ has risen from the dead. You confess with your mouth that he is Lord. The word confess, meaning to fess with. Con is with. Fess, profess, to profess with. Profess with whom? Well, profess with Christ about his own lordship. This isn't a statement that says, you have to make Christ your Lord, because that's impossible. He's already Lord. Confess means you profess with Christ that he is Lord. Believe in your heart that he has risen from the dead, which means this belief itself is a gift. And when we confess, that confession coming out of us, it's, it's, it's just from the gift that God has given us to understand what he is doing. This isn't some sort of workspace thing where we have to muster up belief that someone could rise from the dead. No, God just places that in us. That we have to somehow make ourselves obey everything that Christ commanded. No, this is, this, that's, confession is not going before a priest and confessing all of our sins so that we're clean. Confession in the scriptural sense, in the biblical sense, is professing with Christ about his lordship, about his sovereignty, that this whole thing is about his will, not ours. That's biblical Christianity. That's what Paul gives us. And lest we think that we have to, once we become Christians, be perfect in everything that we do, we do not forget Romans chapter 8, like verses 38 and 39. Nothing in heaven or on earth, in fact, not even death or angels or demons or people, nothing can separate us from the love of God 
if we are in Christ. And that's it. And it's entirely a work of God. So, so Paul spins the entire book of Romans, and I, I, I wish I had time to read it all, right? Paul spins the entire book of Romans just expounding on what the gospel is through chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, he applies the gospel. That's all the book of Romans is, yet it's the most controversial book. Yet it's the most difficult to understand in our time when it is just an expounding of the Old Testament scriptures with reference to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That being said, we come to these questions that we want to ask. Why do we teach that people must contribute to their salvation by praying a prayer, the sinner's prayer, by being baptized, by speaking in tongues, by partaking in the Eucharist, the sacraments, by confessing their sins to priests, by doing evangelism, or otherwise working to please God? And in light of just what the gospel is, what the good news is, the only way we can answer is by saying, if salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone to the glory of God alone, no religious work contributes whatsoever to human salvation. Baptism, not required. One does not have to walk an aisle and pray a sinner's prayer. No one must speak in tongues, observe the sacraments, confess to priests, do evangelism, or please God in order to gain salvation or to be justified. We have established that we cannot please God by nature and by his design, by our works. He alone saves and receives all glory for the salvation of his people. Simply call upon the name of the Lord. That's it. <laughs> You're oversimplifying things. You're making things way too easy. God is good. He made it that easy. Yet it's the most difficult thing to do, right? It's impossible for us to do by nature without a movement of the Holy Spirit. Why do we teach that once coming to Christ, people must do good or give enough money so as to not fall from grace or so as to earn blessings from God? Here's our answer. Since salvation is a work of God alone, it's what we call monergism, there is nothing we can do to separate ourselves or be separated from God. Nothing is required, according to Scripture, for us to maintain our salvation, period. We don't maintain our salvation. God does. Through His Holy Spirit, right? He's the one who does that. Question three. Why does the church major on buildings and budgets and minor on the work of the gospel as already completely finished in Christ alone, as if we need anything more? Here's our answer. We, as people, really like to build for ourselves rather than for God. This is proof of our selfishness and arrogance, even in our religion. Buildings and budgets are not inherently sinful, but when we major on those things, we major on ourselves rather than God, who is to receive all glory. We want to see what God is building, not just what we can build, right? And the fourth question, why does the church provide security in the works of people rather than the work of Christ? If we have a list of simple things we can do to be righteous or to be good Christians, we don't have to have faith that God will save us because we've checked off a list we think holds us secure. If, if our religion is a checklist religion, we don't have to have faith 
we can just do some good things and stay away from some other good things. I mean, stay away from some bad things. I don't know, some people try to stay away from good things, don't they? And we feel good about ourselves and we think we're secure because we feel good about ourselves. When faith means, well, you've seen Indiana Jones, right? The invisible walkway. You just got to step out on it. There's no security there. God is a dangerous God. But he is way more faithful than we are. And even if we slip and fall, he promises to catch us. We rest on that. That's faith, right? As we have seen, our works damn us rather than secure us. Only if God has mercy on us will we be saved in Christ. And this is in the book of Romans too. God has mercy on whom he will have mercy according to his will. And that's Romans chapter 9. I already know the accusation that will doubtless be brought against me because of this sermon. <laughs> you don't believe works are important. I didn't say that. I said our works don't justify us. They don't. They damn us. But when we are in Christ, I believe he saves us to walk in the good works that he has prepared for us from the foundation of the world. You can read that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. And my prayer, my prayer for those hearing this, those who will hear this as we get this message, the gospel message out into the community, my prayer is that we understand who God is and what he is doing, that we are interested in his glory alone. That when we do, good works, we understand that those good works are done not to manipulate God into giving us something, but that those good works are done in response to what God has already done. And that when we do those good works, we do them in faith, the faith that God has so graciously given to each of us. And the kindness and the mercy of God lead us to what? Condemn others. No, to repentance. And in fact, even Peter, he preached the gospel message. People ask, what do we do in response, to, in response to this? Not to get this, but in response to what we have heard and the way God has moved our hearts, what do we do? Peter's reply was, repent, be baptized. You and your entire households, your families. So that's the only gospel invitation we can give. If Christ has cut you to the heart, if the word has cut you to the heart, call upon the name of the Lord. Repent, believe the gospel, come and be baptized.